Well, my text for this evening uh, is, in great part, uh, a prologue to the life of Saul. We're about to be introduced to him who is to be the king that was asked for in chapter 8. And this works as a sort uh, of a prologue. Chapter 9 introduces a lot of themes and a lot of subjects and a lot of ideas that will only be fulfilled and, and expanded upon as we get to chapter 16. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we don't need to go straight to chapter 16 to understand what is going on here because the text already shows us what is about to happen. And spoiler alert, it is not great. The picture that is painted for us uh, is not a, a picture that is uh, very good on different levels. Saul seems to, to have a, uh, a lot going for him, but a few shortcomings that will be clear as we go through the, this passage. But it is fundamental. Before we, we get to, to, to these is issues, it is fundamental for us, and, and I know I've said this before, but I... I actually need to re-emphasize it. It's fundamental for us to grasp the, what this text um, says, to, to, under, to understand that this text flows from the book of Judges. And I know I've said this in the previous sermons, but more so in this chapter, because we're about to see an unfolding, a, a, a change in the status quo. And in particular, in the book of Judges, I believe in chapter 20 or 21, you find that the Benjamites... The, the tribe of Benjamin had been laid waste because of their sinfulness, because they, they, they failed to address the sin in their midst. And because of this, a, a civil war broke out. The, the other 11 tribes laid waste to the tribe of Benjamin to the point that only 600 men were left. So the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Saul, uh, was very much in a debilitated straight uh, state at this time. So it's rather surprising when you read of, of Saul's family uh, tree, of uh, Saul's pedigree, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and that actually his father, Kish, was uh, a man of power, a man of wealth. But hardly, as we start reading this, it's hardly a commendation because of the story of Benjamin. Last week, just for those who perhaps haven't been following, last week we considered, uh, we've been considering chapter 8 and uh, a stubborn, rebellious request on the part of the Israelites that Samuel or God, uh, should uh, intercede with God so that God would appoint them the, a king so that they would be like the, uh, the nations. And we've, see, we've been seeing how this uh, request, uh, albeit seemingly motivated uh, on the on the surface with uh, desires for peace and security, as Samuel is getting older, we, we saw that actually what's at the heart of the matter is sinfulness, a sinful desire to, to reject the kingship of God over them and to establish a king over them that would make them like the other nations, a desire to be more worldly in that sense of the word, to be more like the world, to be more like the nations around them. 
And this is a scenario which now chapter 9 unfolds. We're introduced in chapter 9 to Saul. Literally, the name Saul uh, means asked for. And you, I, don't, I don't think I need to uh, unfold or explore with a lot of this because you understand the irony or the pun that is uh, Saul's name. Chapter 8 was this relentless asking for a king or demanding for a king time and time again give us a king give us a king give us a king so that we may be like the other nations and then here you go you demand a king here you go the one you asked for the one you've chosen the one you were looking for but before we we move forward let me just say this as well i think i've i've said this before when we were reading through the book of of ruth but it it's often good for us to be reminded of this, those same old truths. Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed, is inspired by God, and is useful for our instruction, for our rebuke. All scripture, including this passage. I know we're so far removed from, from 1 Samuel 9 as one can be almost both geographically and chronologically. We're, we're thousands of years uh, past this time. We're, we're thousands of miles away from the, the, the place where the, this, uh, these events took place. But nonetheless, if we believe indeed that all scripture is in, uh, inspired by God, breathed out by God, it's not a question of the, if this passage has instruction for us. The posture of our hearts should be that what kind of instruction does this passage hold for us? And the same is true when Paul addresses the Romans. Let me just turn there so I, get, so I don't paraphrase it too, uh, too much. In Romans um, chapter 15, he says a very similar thing. Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. So again, the, the question is not if this passage is meant to teach us, is meant to be for our learning and to give us hope. The question is, where do we find that hope? Because this is written for our learning, that we, through the comfort and patience of scriptures, we might have hope. And I think there is plenty here, as we will see. One of them, and that's going to be perhaps the main central idea of today's sermon, and I think uh, it flows from the text, is that we are to live by faith and not by sight. That we are to live by faith and not by sight. Because the picture we have presented here before us is two contrasting things. What the eye sees in Saul what, what we see with the eyes of the flesh and those things that the eye doesn't see. So, and those are going to be the, the, the first two points. And thirdly, uh, as we conclude the sermon, we will consider what the Lord sees. So three points. What the eye sees. Second point, what the eye doesn't see. What lies beyond the surface. And thirdly, what the Lord sees. So it begins, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, 
the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man, a man of, uh, of power. The, some translations here uh, translate as man of wealth, which basically is the same thing. We all understand how money and power go together. And, and both of the, those translations are correct, correct. He was rich. He was powerful. So immediately we are presented with Saul as someone who comes from a rich and powerful family. He is surrounded by power and might. He is a, a person that has been groomed and brought up in wealth and in power. He's from a lineage, uh, a pedigree that has uh, a family that has uh, status within the tribe of Benjamin. He has a good name. That's not necessarily wrong. Again, Proverbs uh, 22 speaks about the, 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 the blessing it is to have a good name, to have a good uh, lineage. It is not necessarily wrong, but that's what you see. First of all, he's rich and powerful. He had a choice and handsome son. So we get some more information about what the eye sees with Saul. He was a choice son. Here, choice, again, depending on the, on the translation you consult, uh, can be translated as a young son. He's a choice. He's, uh, he is in the prime of his, uh, or uh, in the prime of his potential, or is he uh, full of potential and vitality. He is a young man, a choice man, ready to, to, to take on the world. And again, that's not a bad thing. Time and time again, Ecclesiastes uh, speaks about the importance of putting to good use the youthfulness and the vigor that one has in a in 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 young age. That's good. But is that all? No. It also says that he's handsome. He has a handsome appearance. He was an, uh, it's an indication that he is a man that stands out. He looks good. He looks healthy. He looks uh, uh, ruddy, as uh, perhaps uh, was said of David as well in, in 1 Samuel 16. He has these physical descriptors. Not only that, he, he is not only uh, rich, young, handsome, and he's tall. Good thing we don't have a lot of... Uh, 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 young ladies here looking for, 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 a, for a suitor because this, they, they go, you're describing the person I'm looking for. That's the kind of person that Saul is. He's tall, handsome, rich. Uh, uh, he's uh, well-off. All of these things. Not only that, but when you read verse 3 and 4, you also see that he was obedient. His, son, his father tells him to go and, and uh, look for the donkeys, and immediately he obeys his father's request. He respects and he obeys his father. That's good. He's ready to undertake this task with obedience. Obedience, that is good. He, has a, uh, he is honoring his father. Again, a, a, good, a good thing. I would even argue, although this is a little bit more tentative, that as you read his, uh, his pursuit of the donkeys, actually it conveys to us that he is relentless, at least for the first three days. It is a little bit more tentative because he kind of is the one that wants to turn back. But he's relentless in, the, in his pursuit. For three days, he goes from mountain to mountain, from city to city, trying to find 
the, the donkeys. And he's good. And he's preoccupied with the family. Because at the end of the three days, he says, well, let us cease to search for the donkeys. Lest my father stop worrying for the donkeys and starts worrying for me. Again, the picture we're being presented is a, is a very good one. Saul, from a human perspective, he seems to have everything going for him. He seems to possess all the favorable attributes that, I, that the eye can see. He's wealthy, he's good-looking, he's uh, tall, he's young, uh, he has a sense of responsibility, he resembles uh, an ideal figure in, in society. How many of us would give an arm and a leg if, if lacking an arm and a leg wouldn't be immediately uh, something that would cause us not to be like this? But we, we would give everything to be like Saul. I think that's the picture that is being presented to us. Uh, a desirable young, again, we have to define young here and perhaps the older ones, uh, 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 but young here because we know that he already has a son who is of a military age, Jonathan, he has been in battle, um, which would make Jonathan around uh, 20. Let's say that he's somewhere in his uh, middle to late 30s, Saul. That's, what, that's perhaps the age that Saul is at this moment. If, if uh, Jonathan was somewhere at, uh, in his late teens, early 20s, if Jonathan was that age, then Saul would be uh, about 15, 20 years older than Jonathan. But how many of us would want to be like this? A living uh, a representation of worldly societal success. And yet, as we look at Saul's re uh, demeanor, and as we see what lies beneath the surface, as we read chapter 9, we realize that it's all externals. It's all things that, uh, that are seen by the eye, but that actually when you look behind the curtain, when you peer inside, there is a lot of shortcomings and there is a lot to be concerned about. But that's what Israel wanted. That's exactly what Israel wanted. They wanted someone who would strike awe and wonder in the, in the nations around them. They, they wanted an iron ruler, someone who would, would be uh, strong and someone by worldly standards would fight their battles. Spoiler, there is always in the world someone who is stronger. If you seek to win the... The kingdom of God by entertainment, the, the world will always be more entertaining. If you seek it to take it by, uh, uh, by wits, the, there is always going to be something that is wiser. That's not how, we, uh, how the kingdom works. But nonetheless, you asked for it. Here you go. Saul, the one who was asked for. A per almost perfect, handsome, intelligent, and well-off young man. So what are his shortcomings? What is it that the eye doesn't see? First of all, Saul seems ignorant of the existence of Samuel. I find it hard, even now, to, to understand how it is, it's remarkable how it is that Saul 
who lived so close to Ramah, uh, when you look at the map, you understand that Ramah was not very far away from, from, uh, from uh, the land when, where Saul lived. Saul, who was so close, yet he never heard of Samuel. Samuel, whose reputation was spread throughout the land from a very young age. Saul's lack of awareness about Samuel reflects something of a disconnect Something of a, 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 a lack of spiritual vitality in him. Because Samuel was the one who was the prophet of God, the, the judge of Israel at this time. He was living in Gibeah. It's not very far away from Ramah. Nonetheless, he didn't know about Samuel. He was completely unaware, and that paints for us a portrait of someone who is outwardly very uh, competent, but actually inwardly, spiritually, he's blind and deaf and dead, spiritually. I ask myself, why is it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why, why Saul was not aware of Samuel. Was it in, the, in his family? Was there a lack of spiritual vitality at home? Was Kish not leading his, his family well? In a sense, that would fit, wouldn't it? Because the other two family scenarios that we've seen, perhaps even three, but the other family scenarios that we've seen in, throughout the book of Samuel, they're not great. Um, Eli and his children, even Samuel with his children, or Elkanah with, with his children, or has he dealt with his wives and the problems there? It seems like there is a, 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 a under, a, an underpinning theme here that, that causes us perhaps to wonder if that is. But nonetheless, whatever the reason, he didn't know who Samuel was. Doesn't bode well. But secondly, as you, you look at verse 7, he was also unprepared. Doesn't it strike you uh, weird? It does to me. And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if uh, how exactly is what exactly to make of this. So I will, will refrain from making any definitive conclusions, but when he says that, then Saul said to his servant, but look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to, to bring to the man of God. Isn't it strange that he thinks that he needs uh, to bring something? It is a very strange confession or a very strange problem that he found. As Saul prepares to, to meet with Samuel, by the way, because the servant pointed him that Samuel's way, he realizes that he's lacking something to bring. It portrays to me that he, he has a fundamental, I think, I might be wrong, but I, it seems to portray to me that there is a, a fundamental problem in the way that Saul perceives God. Because God is the God who, who requires nothing from our hands. He has a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God. He's focused on material offerings which kind of betrays a little bit of his mindset as someone who is more concerned with what, what can be seen and, what, uh, and the material. 
his focus on material offerings kind of betrays his mindset. When actually what God wants is someone who, who is of a clean heart, genuine heart. Micah 6, verse 6 to 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? If you ask Samuel, he'd say, oh, we need to bring something. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, Micah asks, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And the answer is, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but that you do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. That is what God wants. It seems to me that what is being presented to us, and again, I don't want to be definitive, but I think it is... Uh, what we see here is that Saul has a fundamental misunderstanding about who God is, about the great giver that God is, that he has to, that he thinks he can racketeer uh, a blessing from the giver who gives freely and graciously. So you see, the point here is that Saul seems to walk by sight and not actually by faith. Saul's approach to all of this seems to be fundamentally what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where he says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Saul would say, no, we walk by sight and not by faith. In fact, that's what Israel is. That's what they are asking for. They, they want something that is pleasant in the eyes. Nonetheless, he paints a very grim picture for, of what's to come. And brothers and sisters, this is fundamentally our issue as well in our day. Will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? What is it that we, that we desire? What is it that you deeply desire? Is it to be seen by others? To be uh, applauded and accepted by the world? Is it to be uh, received and, and embraced by the world? That is very much the, the, the ongoing pull of liberal theology. All this nonsense about, about embracing LGBT, all this nonsense about uh, embracing uh, gender uh, pronouns or different pronouns, all in the church and in churches, all this nonsense about stopping to stop. I was listening to radio the other day, uh, and it kind of made my blood boil, about stopping uh, this uh, misogynistic uh, definition of God as a male uh, and, and some wacky religious leader came on and said oh actually the uh, the bio, god the god of the bible is neither male or female so we can refer to him as father or mother never mind what the bible says never mind what god's word says that but that's the thing that's the fundamental push it's will you want to be seen and accepted and to seem victorious in the eyes of the world? Will, are you more concerned about externalities to look good and proper to those outside or are you more concerned about what God sees? That's in fact one of the, the fulfillments in, in, in Samuel 16 of this is that God himself says, 
that the Lord doesn't look at outward appearances, but he looks on the heart, which is even more pressing when you understand that Saul was someone who was all show, but no substance. And I think that's what is fundamentally here. I, I wouldn't put all my... Uh, if some commentators see this as a, a, a good beginning for Saul, and I'll say this before we move, move to the third point and last point, but some commentators, when they're looking at this, they say, oh, actually, Saul had a very nice beginning. It was later on that he went astray. I don't think it is true. I think from the beginning you can see that Saul's uh, uh, path was, was crooked. You can see from the beginning that there is a lot of shortcomings on the spiritual side. But let's move to the next point. And finally, what does the Lord see? I think fundamentally in this passage, we have a similar situation as the book of Ruth. You remember when we looked at the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, the, the fundamental uh, storyline there is not so much what is happening between um, Ruth and Boaz uh, and uh, Naomi. It's not so much that. That's, that's there on the surface. But the invitation is for us to look beneath the surface and see the God who is uh, orchestrating, conducting, in weaving himself into this situation, providentially ordering things for for his uh, for his glory, and that's exactly what I think. Uh, how I think we should look at chapter nine of Samuel, more than what is there on the surface, and albeit those things are are there nonetheless for our learning as well. Each and every verse, not just the the big picture, but each and every tree in the forest. But when you look at the big picture, you see that God is ordering all these things, these seemingly random and uh, inconsequential things happening, donkeys getting lost, a father asking his son to go look for the donkeys, uh, a servant who actually happens to have a, a quarter of a shekel in his, in his pocket. All these things seem to point us in the direction that God is sovereignly weaving himself or weaving the, the, the situation for his glory. That is clear. There is, and, and perhaps the, the, the key to this passage is there in verse 15 to verse 17. Let's just read those three verses. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. You see, that's the point of the passage. If nothing else, or that's the, the main uh, emphasis here of the passage, is that God is showing and controlling sovereignly and choosing sovereignly how things go about. And that is a wonderful thing. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Let me just say this so, you, so that you see how, the, how the, this whole thing unfolds even in the, in the Old Testament. 
You remember Jacob, the, the Benjamin's father. This, we're talking here about Benjamin, the tribe. But Benjamin, the tribe, takes the name from Benjamin, Jacob's uh, son, uh, younger son. Um, you remember that when God promised to Benjamin that he, out of him, or when God promised to Jacob that out of him would come kings, immediately after Benjamin is born. In all, almost saying that, well, kingship will come, the, monar the monarchy will come from, through Benjamin. But in fact, as you read through the book of Genesis, you find that the monarchy will come through Judah. And what, what is the reason why Judah was the one that uh, took the monarchy, I would say, out of Benjamin? Because Judah had proposed himself, Judah the man, not Judah the tribe, had proposed himself to be a substitute for Benjamin. Then you see these things, and you, you kind of go, uh, interesting how these things fit. Because now that the monarchy is arriving in Israel, it comes first in God's sovereign purposes through Benjamin, but that's not the ultimate uh, king in Benjamin. There is a shift and change in dynasty to then David, who is a son of the tribe of Judah, therefore accomplishing the plans of God in this. But that's just a, a, an interesting tidbit uh, as we see these things unfold through the through the, New, through the Old Testament. How does God accomplish his plans? Well, God accomplishes his plans in perfect synth, uh, um, harmony with human free, and I'll say this, with, no, with, with, with a clear conscience. God accomplishes his purposes in perfect harmony with human free will. It's the pastor defending that, saying that we have free will. In a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. We have human responsibility. We have freedom of choice. The decisions we make are our decisions. We know through the teaching of Scripture that uh, we have no uh, capacity to make ourselves pleasing before God. But nonetheless, our decisions are, are not robotic, uh, fatalistic, deterministic decisions. And what we see in this passage is that God accomplishes his purposes in perfect harmony with all these decisions going about, with all of these things happening. Isn't it interesting? It's the playing out of Proverbs. A, man's, uh, a man devises in his heart, but, but the Lord directs his steps. It's his decision. It's his freedom. Nonetheless, it's God that is directing his steps. And uh, the old uh, reformers and the old reformed theologians, they used to talk about primary causes and secondary causes. God is the primary cause of everything. But he appoints means and he appoints ways for those primary causes to be brought into fruition. And often they are the decisions and the plans of the heart of man. <coughs> And that's what we see. That's God's providence, God's sovereignty. Well, let me just point out finally God's mercy, how God sees all of this, the, the God's uh, perspective upon this passage. There is something of God's mercy on this passage. And I hope you, uh, you caught on to it if you were paying attention from last week. 
You remember the, the, the threat uh, or the promise, because God's threats are promises. God's threats uh, are real. It's not just an empty threat, as so often we do as parents with our children. Um, God's promises, uh, God's threats are very much real. He says to the people, on that day, you will call upon me, and I will not hear you. Verse 18, and you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you. But then you come to verse 9, uh, to chapter 9, and you find in verse uh, 15 that part of the reason why God sovereignly and providentially has appointed Saul to be the king of, the, the, of Israel is because he is to be the commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come up to me. Isn't it wonderful? You ask, why, how come this, uh, this can take place on, on the space of one chapter? First of all, they're not crying, be, crying out because of David or because of David. No, they're not crying out because of Saul. Uh, it's a crying out because of the enemies. And nonetheless, God is faithful to his covenant. The covenant that God had made with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He is faithful to that covenant. As we actually read in, in Psalm 89, this, uh, this service, God will see that his covenant, that his promises are fulfilled. So regardless of the sinfulness of this generation, God will see to it that the people are preserved, that his covenant remains. Regardless of the sinfulness of, uh, and the, uh, of the request of the, uh, uh, of the elders of Israel, God will see to it that his people are preserved from their enemies. That for me reminds me very much of God's uh, mercy in the New Testament. That his mercy is more than all our sins. That our sinfulness cannot dry up the fountain of mercy that exists in God. Let me say that again. Our sinfulness cannot dry up the fountain of mercy that exists in God. His faithfulness is forever and ever. And in spite of the sinful request, in spite of the rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked attitude of Israel, God's still a God who delights in being a fortress and a shield for his people, in, in dem demonstrating mercy and forgiving sins. He still shows his mercy. He still shows his love. So you see, in this passage, we have a graphic illustration, not just of Saul, with his positives and his shortcomings, of what the eye sees and what the, the eye doesn't see. In this passage, we have something of, what, of God's sovereignty in choosing, providence in directing, and mercy in even in spite of the sinfulness protecting and saving, ultimately, his people. And we find this time and time and time again in Scripture. It's, it, it's almost a, 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 
an impossible task to, to account and to categorize and to quantify all the times that we see God's providence, sovereignty, and mercy together working through the, the and weaving itself through the history of, of the Old Testament into the New. It's there when, when Esther is born and the parents perhaps looked at the, the beautiful young girl that they had, not realizing that God was sovereignly and providentially uh, bringing uh, Esther into the, uh, to the frame so that Esther would be the one who was appointed for such a time as this so that God might display mercy to the people in spite of God not even being named in the book of Esther. It's there in the, in, in the story of Moses and uh, where, when Moses' mother uh, puts the basket in the river Nile and, and all, lo and behold, the, the basket uh, finds itself in the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh. It's not coincidence, it's design. It's there on the other side of the, on the flip side of the coin in the story of Joseph. Uh, when the, the brothers of Joseph upset because of what Joseph had done, or the, the dream that Joseph had had, uh, this story about them bowing down before Joseph, uh, they are so upset, so uh, furious, and so jealous uh, about this dream that they, that they perform that horrid uh, t uh, action. And what does God say? Or what does Joseph, how does Joseph interpret this? What do you meant for evil? God meant for good. Providentially, sovereignly, and mercifully, God inserts himself into all of this. And I'm sure, brothers and sisters, if we look long and hard throughout our lives, we can see exactly the same thing panning out in a lot of things that seemed evil in the, in the past. We can see uh, God sovereignly providentially and mercifully at work in a lot of things that seemed inconsequential. Three donkeys that got lost, and yet God was working there. Perhaps for you it's uh, going out to grab a, a, a carton of milk one night, and you come home saved. I know some of your stories, uh, testimony of salvation. For some of you it's, it's sort of that way, isn't it? Something that was seemingly inconsequential. And God was using that mercifully, sovereignly, and providentially. And that's what we need to learn. We need to recognize that God often inserts himself through subtle and yet wonderful ways into our lives. Not sometimes, all the time. We, we just have to, uh, a difficult time interpreting them most of the times. But he always inserts himself into our lives subtly, yeah, subtly, yes, but decisively for our good. For all things work together for good, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And that's what God does in our daily life. Let us not forget that we have a sovereign, providential, merciful God in control of everything, of all circumstances, of all seemingly random events, of all seemingly inconsequential events that go on in our lives, that he is there. Let us remind ourselves that we do not know what the day will bring, but we know we have a God 
that is good. And there are times, as David says in Psalm 31, our times are in his hands. And as a uh, final point, let me just say, let us remember as well to be like the servant of Saul. The servant of Saul actually demonstrates a, a wisdom uh, that is remarkable. They had a burden, they had a trouble, they had a difficulty. Let us be like the servant of Saul with all our burdens, with all our difficulties. Let us run to the man of God. Fortunately, in the New Testament, we do not need an intermediary as the day, uh, in the days of the Old Testament. We can go directly to the source. And we have the word of God to guide us. Let us not waste our access to God. I love that hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything in, to God in prayer. And, and then he says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let us not be like that. Let us carry all everything to God in prayer. And let us trust this wonderful, sovereign, providential master God that we have. Because ultimately his providence, his sovereignty, and his mercy is most clearly displayed on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, a seemingly um, unimpressive man, the true king, the king according to the line of Judah, the king, the king in the line of David that we read and, and meditated upon on Psalm 89, he was unimpressive. There was nothing in, in his outward persona to commend us to him. He was there dying on that cross with no crown of diamonds and gold in his head. He was there on that, crown, uh, on that cross uh, beaten and, and, and despised with nothing to, to commend him to us. And yet it was on that cross that this fountain that is filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins, that is the fountain of mercy that never runs dry, was opened. And let me entreat you, let me plead with you to go to that man of God, to go to that, to the one man of God that is Jesus Christ, that you, for you to step into that river of mercy, to be bathed in his blood, to be clothed with his righteousness, to walk, to live in the newness of life, a life that is not concerned about outward externalities, a life that begins on the inside, and yes, flows to an outside, but it is a life that is lived by faith and not by sight. Cast yourself upon him, trust in him, from now and forevermore.